Uh, with that being said, we're going to jump into our gospel passage this morning, which is Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. If you want to turn your Bibles there, we're continuing to go through the Gospel of Mark. Um, we're going one paragraph at a time, one verse at a time, one story at a time to really get a flow of thought of what's happening in this. And we're not skipping around. We're blazing a trail through it. And so this past week, one of the things that's been happening, we, we know that the Gospel of Mark has been asking the question, who is Jesus? That's the question we've been asked. Who is he? Is he a prophet? Is he, a, is he John the Baptist? Is he a really great teacher? And several weeks ago, Peter finally got the answer right. He said, you're the Messiah. And as soon as that has happened, Jesus has been driving home the fact that the Messiah's job is not to set up this amazing kingdom with all this glory and military victory and stuff like that. The Messiah's job is going to be to be rejected and to suffer and to do a rescue of every man, woman, and child. And it's been a shock to the system for the disciples. They don't know what to do with this. They're like, okay, wait, so you're not going to do this the way we want you to do it. There's not going to be political power and prestige and military victory. There's going to be like rejection and suffering. That can't be it. They've been rejecting it. And we're going to see later today that Jesus keeps putting that in front of them, that this is the job of the Messiah. And it's not as he's going to be teaching them we're going to see now that he is driving to that end. He doesn't just want to make it clear. He's determined that he is going to do this, and nothing is going to peel him off the mission that he's been given. He is going there. It doesn't matter what his disciples say. It doesn't matter what they think. He knows that his job is to go to that cross and die on the cross for us. That's, that's what's going on. And so as we were seeing last week, he just had this little rigmarole with all of them. And Peter, James, and John are with Jesus up on this mountain. He kind of went away after some of this conversation about what it means to follow him. And, and while he's on the mountain, this crazy experience happened. This is last week. He started glowing. That's a little freaky. Okay, he's glowing. His clothes get super white. All of a sudden, Peter, James, and John are sitting there trying to figure out what's going on. And Moses and Elijah are there. Like, they're back from the dead. They've been dead for like a thousand years or more. And they're having a conversation with Jesus. And Peter, James, and John are like, oh, man, this is, this is awesome. And then there's that moment of like awkward silence. You know what I'm talking about when I say awkward silence, right? Like that, that's a moment of awkward silence and Peter can't take it and so he starts talking. He's scared and things are coming out of his mouth and he's like, listen, what we should do? Three tabernacles for worshiping you guys and Moses and Elijah and you, you guys are all three are great. I can't wait to come up here and bring more people up here to see you three. And then that moment the cloud comes down and God speaks out of the cloud and he's like, listen, this is my son, him, he's my son. He's not one of these prophets, it's my son. He's big, he's huge, he's great. He's not at the level of one of these prophets. He's way greater than that. He's greater than Moses, he's greater than Elijah, he's greater than everything. Listen to him. So now they're walking down the mountain and God has made it clear. Peter, stop talking and start listening to my son. That's kind of the deal that he's made really clear. He's great, I don't. Don't come up with your theories. Don't do all this stuff. Just listen to Jesus. So where we're picking up today is they're coming down the mountain. And listen, I can, for me and my imagination, I, I imagine this scene. I mean, if you just had this experience, you are pumped out of your brain on that hike back down from the mountaintop, right? You are not, that is not like a slow stroll. Like the, the picture I get is uh, last year I got to go with a group of fifth graders to Disney World. And uh, if you've ever taken kids to Disney World, there's this thing that happens after a crazy ride. We took a group of boys and convinced them to ride Space Mountain, the epic 
roller coaster at Disney World. And they get on Space Mountain. And before they get on the ride, you can tell. I just hope they don't pee their pants. Like, they're scared. They're nervous. They're all jittery. Like, I don't know about this. And there's the peer pressure to get on this ride and ride it. And they ride it. But after they get off that ride, after all the twists and turns and darkness, they step off that ride. And, dude, they are like caged animals running out of that thing. You know, like the adrenaline takes over and they're jumping and slapping things and screaming and running and yay! Then they go get in line and they fall asleep. It's kind of that adrenaline rush thing. Like what I picture in this is this adrenaline rush of these guys, man. They just had this experience of Jesus with glowing and Moses and Elijah and a cloud and God talking to them. This is not a boring walk down the mountain. And if it's me, I got lots of questions. Like, hey, Jesus, you were glowing, you, the, right? We saw that you were glowing, right? Do, does that happen very often? Have we missed this? Like, you're talking with Moses and Elijah. Have you done that before? Like, that cloud that came down, was that, was that God talking? Did Peter almost just get killed like 15 minutes ago for being stupid? Like, like there's, I have a ton of questions. Like, wh- what's about to happen? Are you about to be king? Are you about to rule? Like, this is amazing. Like, they have all these questions, and they're talking with him, and then here's what happens as they're walking down. Super excited, super jazzed, probably super talkative. Verse 9, here's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 9. And as they were coming down the mountain... He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So, so his thing is, okay, guys, I need you to calm down for a second. You are not allowed to talk about this with anyone. Is that confusing to you? <laughs> He's like, you, you can't talk about this until after I come back from the dead. And these guys are like, okay, all right, no talkie. I cannot talk about this until, wait, what did you say? You said come back from the dead? Like, Like, what is Jesus doing here? Let me tell you, Jesus is determined that he is going to the cross and he is not going to allow a crowd to lose themselves in a moment of excitement and come and try to make him be king. He wants it quiet because his goal is to die, not reign on an earthly throne and kick the Romans out. He's got a bigger plan than that. So he's telling the guys to be quiet and they've got this thing that happens. Look at what happens in in verse 10 because that phrase risen from the dead. I mean, that makes sense to us, right? We know the story. We know that in two chapters, he's going to enter Jerusalem. And then after that, several chapters, there's going to be betrayal and arrest and crucifixion. We already know that he's going to die. And we know that Easter is coming and he's going to come back from the dead. But the disciples don't know any of that. They hear the phrase, man, you, you want to come we can't talk about this until you raise from the dead. And, and here's probably what's going on in their head. Look at verse 10. So, so they kept a matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Like it, It's not that he's being confusing. It's just that he has talked in so many parables, like things about yeast and seeds and thorns. And he's got all these parables about fish and fishing. He's always telling a parable. This has got to be one of those moments where Jesus is talking all vague and confusing, and we've got to figure it out. So they're talking amongst themselves. They don't want to get this wrong, right? And they're sitting there saying they're trying to figure this out. Now, now here's my issue, just in case you're wondering. Less than a week ago, Jesus and the disciples had like a huge confrontation. Like it was an awkward confrontation. And as part of that confrontation, Jesus called Peter Satan. You remember that? Let me just be honest. When you have a blow up like that, with this guy that you really respect, 
you don't forget about that moment a week later. And let me show you what he was talking about when he had that blow up. Look back at Mark chapter 8, verse um, 31 and 32. Here's what he says. When he had this blow up with Peter, you're gonna, Peter's going to remember this conversation. This is why he got called Satan, because he disagreed with the statement. Here's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. He was very direct about it. And that's when Peter's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And then the whole, get behind me, Satan. Like, that's a moment you're going to remember, right? If you're called Satan by someone, it's awkward, it's embarrassing in front of all your friends. You remember that conversation. So a week later, when Jesus is saying, don't tell anyone about this until I come back from the dead, it's a little irritating that they don't get it. He they just had the blow about this. So they're trying to figure out, what does he mean? Like, what, what could he possibly mean by coming back from the dead? And so they're, they're sitting there. You can see them trying to brainstorm. I don't want to embarrass myself. I don't want another get-behind-me-Satan moment. I don't want to get this wrong. What's going to happen here? So they start asking all this question about the end times. Look at verse 11. Here's what they say. And they ask him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? This is, this is a crazy statement. Like, where did that come from? He says, don't tell anybody about this until I come back from the dead. And they're like, what, dead? I got a question. Hey, um, doesn't Elijah have to come back first? Does that seem like out of nowhere to anyone else? Yeah, usually like, I don't know where he got this. Like they're all of a sudden they're asking Elijah questions. This is not just a, a moment where they're trying to change the subject. Here's what these guys are doing. They're, they're like, hey, like, what are the signs about the coming of the kingdom? Like, what's he talking about, this rising from the dead? Like, did, is that what we just saw? Is it talking about Moses and Elijah coming back from the dead? But wait, it can't be that, because he said, I can't talk about it. Like, what are all the, the things that we've learned? This is a moment where they're trying to ask all these questions about what they've learned about the end times from all of their previous Bible teachers. This is the moment where, in a Baptist circle, you do Left Behind series, and you pull out the charts. I want to see the seven seals and the seven bowls and the seven trumpets and a dragon and the antichrist like let's do it all let's have the full end time thing so they're shifting to end time talk okay jesus we know the order we we know there's an antichrist or a dragon or whatever but when do you do this doesn't this have to happen first that's that's what their question is that's what they're shifting into and i want to show you where they get this real quick so keep your finger in mark chapter 9 and we're going to go old testament I want you to flip to Malachi. It is the last book in the Old Testament. So if you flip back about 20 pages in your Bibles and go to Malachi, you're going to see where they get this Elijah question. Like They're getting this thing. They're trying to ask Jesus. They're going through the timeline of what they know the end time is supposed to be or what they believe. And Malachi, listen to this verse. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. You're going to need to know this one for later. 3 verse 1 says this. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. All right, that sound familiar to you? It should, because that's a very similar thing that they said about John the Baptist. Now, let me go to Malachi chapter 4. There's only one verse that talks about Elijah. In Malachi chapter 4, here's what he's saying. I'm going to get you ready, and I'm going to get you a running head start on Malachi chapter 4. We're going to read all six verses of Malachi chapter 4. Listen to this. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. This is kind of intense. 
The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, said the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. He's saying, listen, he's gonna be coming, and when he comes, it's gonna be brutal. All the wicked will be judged. You can see all the Jews saying, yes, that's exactly what the Romans need. They're idolaters, they're oppressors, they've invaded our land. We need God to come and judge all of them, and if Jesus is the Messiah, this is what he's gonna do for us. Verse two, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from stalls. It's kind of weird, but it would have made sense to them. You're going to go out really happy. There'll be judgment for the wicked, but the righteous, those who do good, those who follow me, man, you're going to be healed. It's going to be happy. Like you're going to, you're going to want to dance like a cow coming out of the stall, whatever that means, okay? You're going to want to dance like a little baby cow. I got a better term, I guess, but... That's what the Bible says. Verse three, and you shall tread down the wicked. You're gonna beat your oppressors. There'll be ashes under your soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And like, man, I got so hopeful for them. When everywhere they go, they're reminded of oppression. They're reminded of a, a people who hate God and worship idols. They're reminded of all the loss and all the things that just don't feel right in their culture. And they are longing for the Messiah to come and judge it all. And they're longing for him to come and rescue them and fix what's broken. Can, can you ever identify with that feeling? So here they are saying, okay, you're coming we just saw Eliza and Moses, and we know it's got this and this. Man, when is this going to happen? And look at the next verses, verse 4 of Malachi, chapter 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Verse 5, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. What you just read is the only verse in the Old Testament that mentions Elijah coming back with the Messiah. The only time they saw it. Now listen, this is kind of impressive to me. Like the disciples knew the Old Testament enough to sit there and go, I know what's supposed to happen. Elijah is supposed to come. I mean, I've been taught this by the scribes. We all agree. I know the verse, the one verse, the one small, teeny, tiny, insignificant verse that mentions Elijah coming. Uh, it's impressive Bible study. I gotta be honest with you. Like These guys' Old Testament knowledge is phenomenal. I don't know that we would get that if the New Testament hadn't told us that. I would bet that if all we had was the Old Testament and we were like, man, Elijah has to come first, I would suspect that we might not get that in our study. These guys are not idiots when it comes to the Bibles. And they're saying, listen to the Bibles. They're not idiots when it comes to knowing the Bible. They've been taught this their whole life. And these guys are saying, Jesus, like, listen, I think you're going to come and set up the kingdom. What we just saw was crazy and strong, but We've been taught and we've been told, and I think we agree with it, that Elijah's supposed to come first. So how does Elijah come first if you're here right now? That's their question. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, I have no better way to say it, so we're going to move on. Anyways, I'm impressed with what they're doing. Look at back in Mark chapter 9. Look at verse 12. Jesus answered 
to them. They're, they're wrestling with all these end times things. And you, I can imagine we would be eating this up. If you and I were in this conversation, we'd be like, tell me all the details. I want timelines. I want the name of the person that's the Antichrist. Tell me everything when this is going to happen. Here's Jesus' answer. Verse 12. He says this. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of them. Here's the problem. Here's what Jesus is doing in that statement, because that, that can seem confusing. He says, yeah, you're right. Elijah does come first, and he does restore things. He does get things ready. And then what he says in verse 13, he already came. You guys are right. He already came, and they did whatever they wanted to him. Matthew adds a little piece of detail for us that the disciples immediately knew that Jesus was talking about John the Baptist. We looked at John the Baptist several chapters ago, but here's the point that Jesus is making. John the Baptist was this Elijah type, and he came and he prepared the way for me to come. You've already missed it. Elijah was already here, and he already left. Here's what stands out to me about that. All of these guys, all of the Jews, were locked in on all the details of the Messiah coming back. They were so locked in, they even knew this minor detail that Elijah had to come first. The one verse in this entire massive Old Testament, and they knew it. They knew the Bible. They knew what it said. They knew what God said was going to happen. And they missed it when it actually happened right in front of their eyes. They knew the word, they'd been taught the word, they knew the details and all the minutia of the details of what it looks like and all these dots and dashes, but when God actually worked, when he actually did it in their very presence, Israel missed it. When God did more than just tell them what he was gonna do, when he actually did in front of them what he promised he was gonna do, they missed him working. And Jesus is saying, man, you guys got all these details, but when God actually did it, you were so blind and so obsessed with all the details of the weeds of what was going to happen and what it should look like, and you added all your own stuff to it. You were so busy trying to get the details right that you actually missed the very presence of one of God's prophets calling you back to him. I said, I get so concerned about this that we could be a people that would know all this knowledge about the Bible. We could know all these verses and all the theology and all the doctrine. We know what to do in church and how to behave. We know what a worship service should look like. We know what all these verses say, but when God actually starts working in our midst, if it doesn't line up with what we think those verses mean, we get really agitated and we reject it. It's, it's crazy to me how quickly, how quickly we can take the word and use it as a shield to actually blind us from the actual work of God. Jesus tells, tells us in John, he confronts the Pharisees, you go to the word because you think that in them you have life, but they talk about me. Church, I, I'm not trying to minimize the Bible. I'm trying to minimize a use of the Bible that misses the presence of God. 
This is not some book that we just read. It's not a tradition that we hold to. This is supposed to connect us to the living creator of the universe. It's supposed to be real and living and alive. And when he works in us, the word should burn more in us, not less. Here's all these people that they know the word and they've memorized the word and they've changed their lives around the word and their schedules and their diet and their giving and everything about them is messed up with the word. And when God actually showed up, they missed him. Would we? Would we miss him if he showed up? Would, would we be a people that we know all the things that God tells us to do, and yet, yet somehow we just can't get there to do it? Like the disciples, they, they felt confused about the details. I mean, let me show you how, how clear Jesus was. Like he, I, want, I want you to see it. I'm going to show you a couple of the verses. I know we flipped all over the place. In Mark chapter 30, I've already showed, eight, chapter 8, verse 30, I've already showed you that he taught them that he was going to die. Look later on in Mark chapter 9. Look at verse 30. After he comes back from the mountain, he has another encounter with some people. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 30, look at what Jesus does. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know why. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, and that word teaching, he's continually on repeat teaching them. He's saying it over and over again. He's not teaching them once. What is he teaching these disciples in this special retreat that he wants to teach them on repeat? The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he's killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Is Listen, is he not being clear? Are they stupid? Is that the problem? Are the disciples just knuckleheads like, I don't understand the words that you're saying. This, this die, this come back from the dead. I don't know the meaning of those. They're not idiots. We've just established they knew an awful lot of the Old Testament to get Elijah. They're not, it's not they're not committed enough. They've left everything to follow him, home, business, family. Peter, we know, has a wife at home because he left her with the in-laws left everything. They're committed. They're not stupid. They know the word. They're committed. What's the problem? How are they missing this? We'll show you another spot, just one chapter later. Mark chapter 10. Look at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Look at this scene. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. Listen, they're going to Jerusalem, but this time it's different. Like, he's not lollygagging to Jerusalem. He's like a man on a mission. Like, it's the way I shop when I go to Publix. Like, I will leave my, I'm in there. I'm blazing a trail. I know exactly what I need. I'm not meandering around. I've got a mission. I go in and I go out. He is walking to Jerusalem with this determination and speed saying, I've got to get there, and I've got to get there now, and I'm not going to slow down. And they know that no one likes them there, and they're nervous about it, and they're afraid. Like, what's going on? Why does he have to be in Jerusalem right now? And here's what he starts saying to them, verse 33. He's saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, 
and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Listen, Jesus is really clear. And these guys never figured it out until after he actually came back from the dead. He said it clearly and repeated it. Before we get too hard on them, can we just be honest about how easy it is for us to fall in this same exact trap? Let's be honest for a moment. I, I believe that God has spoken very clearly to every single one of us about what his plan for your life is. You know what he wants from you, right? You might not know all the nitty-gritty details of how to flesh it out, but you know that his desire for us is to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know that he's got a plan for your family and what your marriage should look like and what it looks like to raise your kids. You know he's got a plan for how you work and how you live life in your neighborhood. We all know that. We know that he has a plan for how church should operate. We know it. We know that when we look at things like Acts chapter two, we see them getting together every single day in each other's homes, breaking bread. They're committed to one another. They're committed to the word. They're committed to prayer. They're committed to sharing the good news with all of those around them. They are this radically accepting, open community that is deeply committed to Jesus and his word and to loving one another and meeting one another's needs. We know. We know it. But there's a gap that I don't know if it's that we keep saying, man, it doesn't feel clear. I don't know. Like, I think when they met every day in each other's homes, I think that means we should hope that people come to church twice a month on Sunday mornings. Is that even the same, like, dynamic I, I think when he says that they're committed to the word, man, if we could just get someone to read their Bible occasionally, I feel like we've knocked a home run. I mean, man, they didn't have AC. They didn't have child care or kids ministry or student ministry. They didn't even have someone getting up and doing what I'm doing right now. There wasn't a, a prepared presentation. They were in homes with this, kids running around all over the place. Every day? They didn't, I, I, that can't apply to us. I mean, we've got t-ball and soccer. We've got beach vacations to take. And we've got, now I'm meddling. <laughs> Church, I, th- I think we know what he wants. We pretend like we don't. I, I don't know why we pretend, maybe so we just don't have to deal with what's happening in our hearts? I'm not saying, see, maybe, maybe it's not that we don't understand it. Maybe we're just afraid. Like Jesus is leading this trail. Like the disciples are behind him and they're trying to go with him, but they see where he's headed and it scares the mess out of them. Maybe we're too afraid to open our homes. We're too afraid to give up those things in our schedules. Maybe we're too afraid 
of the work of getting in the Word and what that says about our hearts, maybe you are afraid to follow Him. Church, I, the point I'm driving at is Jesus has been even more clear with us than what He was with the disciples. You got a whole New Testament. They didn't have not one single lick of it. They had Jesus with them. You know when they got it, though? After he came back from the dead, there was this moment that they were together praying. They were still scared to go out. And it wasn't until God poured out his spirit on those men and women in that room that then it all caught on fire it moved from head knowledge. It moved from some experience with the resurrected Jesus. It moved to this thing where the Spirit was in it and it lit their hearts and lives on fire. Listen, here's the thing that's good news for me. If Jesus can get over the hurdle of the disciples' fear, if he can get over the hurdle of their thick-headedness, if he can get over the hurdle of their blind eyes and their deaf ears and their hard hearts, he can do that for you and I. It's not hopeless. Like I, I don't know what's happening. Right now you might be like, man, I really like, I don't like this, uh, but I'm telling you, the answer has got to be that Jesus does a work in our hearts through his spirit by the power of the word and his spirit. And those things collide in an explosion that actually changes who we are and what we do. When Jesus went to the cross, he went to the cross and they knew he was supposed to go to the cross, but they still ran. When he was beaten, they were still hiding. When he was hanging on the cross, they were still scattered and trying to show up there. When he died, when he came back from the dead and saw him, they were still afraid. But when he poured out his spirit, everything changed. And church, here's, here's what I want you to hear. In the last couple of weeks, we've been doing this thing with the Come to Life series. The goal of that is not that we would just read a book we are seeking Jesus. We've been in it for four weeks now, right around four weeks, and we've got four or five more weeks left. I, I want to encourage you. Like, I want you not to go through the motions of this time. I want us as individuals to go hard after Jesus like he is our only hope for happiness and joy. I want us to pursue him personally and privately, not with a lackadaisical attitude, like if I get to it, I get to it. It doesn't have to be even that book. Any way you want to pursue him, get in his word, and we should be going hard after him, like he's the only way we'll ever be happy. Not like he's an add-on. We go after him like he is the prize, the only prize that we want. And it's not too late. It's not like, oh, if you missed the first four weeks, you can't follow him now. Jump in, man. If, if you need to go hard after Jesus, then let's be a church that helps one another go hard after Jesus. We can do that. He's, he's worth it. His same spirit is in you. And they didn't even get that until after Jesus came back from the dead. You have the same Holy Spirit. You have the completed word of God. And you have one another. We don't need anything else. Listen, 
I want us as a church, I want us together, not just individually, but together to commit to saying, Jesus, we want you to work in our midst, not just in our individual private hearts, but together as a church. We want you to work in a way that feels like it sets something on fire in us. We want you to bring life to our gatherings. We don't want to meet and it be lifeless. We don't want to just meet. We want to be together, like together, together in real, real community that doesn't make sense unless Jesus actually came back from the dead. Does it mean attending and showing? You've got to know some people and be together with some people. We can't do this by ourselves. That was never his plan. He's offering you this thing that you can go hard after him with people next to you, next to you. We can stir each other up. We can beg him to work. We can beg him to work in our church that says, we don't know all that you want to do, but we want you to change it all so it looks like whatever you want. Church, I don't, I don't want us to go half-hearted after Jesus. If, if he's not going to show up, I want us to pursue him together that if he doesn't show, we would rather shut everything down and sell the campus and never meet again. That we say it would be better to do that than to meet and go through the motions and you aren't here and you aren't present and you aren't giving life and we're not following you. That's that's what I want for us. And I, want, I want us to all want that. And I know what I just said sounds pretty radical and crazy, but you gotta understand, if it's not about Jesus, if it's not about him as our source of joy and happiness as life, if it's not about him setting direction, if it's not us about following him and helping each other do it, if it's about anything less than that, then we are wasting our time. Jesus did not go to the cross to give us half measures. He went all the way to the cross to fully clean us and to fully rescue us and to give us life and joy and peace. And he wants to do it through you to the people next to you. And he wants to do it through them to you. Church, I want to invite you. Let's pursue him. Let's pursue him together as the only source of life. Let's not be like the disciples who missed it even though he was clear. Let's not be like the disciples who were afraid when he was going to do what he was going to do, but it scared them too much because they didn't like what that change meant. No, let's be a people. Let's be a people that go hard after Jesus. And when he says go, we go. When he says stop, we stop. When he says repent, we repent. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes.